0: Let's open our Bibles to the ninth chapter of Romans and take up at the seventeenth verse a couple of verses that declare the sovereignty of God as plainly and as powerfully as any place in the Bible. And we are thankful for them. We are thankful to know the God of heaven, the true and the living God, Amen. the God whose name alone is Jehovah. And we're thankful to No passages of scripture like this that declare his works to us. Romans chapter nine, I'll read verses 17 and 18. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardeneth. Amen. Amen and amen. Paul is defending the doctrine of election. He introduced it in the first half of the sixth verse. The second half of the 6th verse, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And then he proceeded to illustrate it. Having prayed in the first five verses for a catastrophe that was occurring in Israel, from any natural observance of them, that God was making a difference, showing mercy upon some and blinding and hardening others, he declared they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, in the second half of verse 6, introducing election. Then he went to illustrate it, and he illustrated it with Abraham's sons in verses 7 through 9, and then Rebecca's twins in verses 10 through 13. In verse 14, he takes up what is a common argument against election, that it makes God bad, it makes him evil, wicked, or unrighteous. And so the apostle poses the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God that God is making an election within Israel? That God chose only one of Abraham's eight sons? That God chose only one of Rebekah's twins? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. No, there is not unrighteousness with God. There is no unrighteousness in Him. His ways are perfect and just. The proof of the point, he lays upon the scriptures. Because the scriptures are the word of righteousness. The scriptures are the word of truth. And so he proves, first of all, the positive side of election in verses 15 and 16. And then the negative side of election in verses 17 and 18. He quotes scripture in both places. Verse 15 is quoted from Exodus 33. And verse 17 is quoted from Exodus 9 that I read to you earlier. So in the first two verses, when you look at 15 and 16, he is defending the righteousness of God making a choice as to whom his children will be and rejecting the rest. He proves it by quoting the scripture, where God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Yes, election is true. It's part of my nature. I have chosen to show myself that way. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Anyone receiving my mercy or my compassion receives either because of my will in the matter. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It is, I don't respect persons at all. I just choose because it seems good in my sight, as Matthew chapter 11 would tell us. And so the conclusion can be drawn from verse 15. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It is not free will. It is not you exercising your will. It is God's will that shows mercy. It is not your works, it is not your efforts, it's not your parents' efforts, it's not God-parent efforts, it's not priestly efforts, it's not works of the law, it's not Arminian works, it's not baptism of the Church of Christ, it's not seven sacraments of Rome, it's not effort, meaning here, it's not running, but of God that showeth mercy, it is purely His will. And here we stand, and we are in a very small minority today of any churches and of Baptist churches believing this doctrine, preaching this doctrine, and seeing the conclusion and application of this doctrine to how we function as a church. We're very rare. And it's by God's mercy. We love this, these verses here. Amen. We love the way that it lifts God up and humbles us. It puts him on his throne and puts us in the dust. The first half of election is God's choice to show favor. God's choice to bless. God's choice to save. God's choice to show mercy and compassion. The other side of election is called reprobation. Reprobates are found in the Bible. That word is found in the Bible. You can find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and about verse 5. Reprobation is certainly a very unpopular doctrine. It is the negative side of election. The positive side of election being God choosing to save some. God choosing to show kindness and favor, mercy and grace in providing Jesus Christ for them. Reprobation means to reject instead of to elect. Instead of to choose, it means to pass over them. It's reprobation. And it is God's choice not to show mercy, not to show compassion, not to show favor blessing, not to save, but to leave to the just and holy consequences of their sins. You cannot have election without reprobation, right. though the latter is ignored by many, if not most, or all, right. practically speaking. For instance, we like to give away a book that we believe summarizes the sovereignty of God quite well, and that's The Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Now, there are a couple publishers of that book, The Banner of Truth being one, and Baker Bookhouse being the other. We purchase those from Baker Bookhouse and resell them or give them away in most cases because they include his chapter on reprobation. Banner of Truth, wanting to be a little more palatable... To their buying audience takes that chapter right out of the book. Amen that's right. For election to be true, reprobation is also true. For God to elect some meant that he rejected others, and on what basis did he reject? We learn that today, on the basis of his will. therefore hath he mercy on whom he will and whom he will he hardeneth leaving them in the wickedness and depravity of their hearts, and actually furthering them in it by turning them over to it, by giving them a reprobate mind to do those things which are inconvenient, like taking your horse and chariot down into the midst of the Red Sea with the water stacked up on both sides after ten plagues that should have communicated a little bit of understanding about the God that Pharaoh was dealing with. It is my job in preaching through Romans to show you why the verses are there and what the words mean. Paul declared election within Israel. He then illustrated it in the first two families of the nation of Israel. He then posed an objection, and in answering that objection, he quotes two passages of Scripture, first to prove that The granting of mercy and compassion by God's will is righteous because Scripture says it is what God does. And second, that hardening men and rejecting them from His mercy and compassion is also righteous because Scripture also says that. And that's the verse where we are right now, verse 17, as it describes God's purpose in the life of Pharaoh. So we have these two verses defending the rejection half, the reprobation half of election from the charge that it makes God unrighteous. Oh no, he is not unrighteous. If he were only righteous without mercy and without grace and without the Lord Jesus Christ, we would all be reprobates. We would all have been passed over. None of us would have been elected. That is the truth of the matter. Instead of being so effeminate and socialistic in your thinking that you resent God for not electing all, you should rejoice and be thankful that he elected any. It's a totally different perspective and one that recognizes the depravity of man and the sovereignty of God. Lord, help us to see it ever more clearly, to know that our salvation is not because there is one scrap of goodness in us, but because He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy, and He willed to have mercy on us. In the matter of righteousness, when we wonder or question, as the Apostle did in the 14th verse here, on behalf of others, if something is righteous, if the Bible declares it being of God's nature, and if the Bible declares it being God's choice, guess what? It is righteous. It's that simple. If God said, I do the positive half of election, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, guess what? That makes it righteous. Because God is perfectly righteous. The apostle does not go off into a theoretical or conceptual discussion of righteousness. He doesn't ask you if you think it sounds fair. He's going to actually tell you in a couple of verses, and we are mounting, we are climbing towards some of my favorite verses in the Bible on this subject. We're not there yet. Oh, but we're getting close. He is actually going to say, it is not your place to even question my righteousness or how I do things, Because I'm the maker, and you're the maid. I'm the potter, and you are the dish, as we sang last Sunday, or the vessel. I love that. If God said it, that makes it righteous, without further explanation. How about the negative half? That's in verses 17 and 18. People will say, and they have said it so many times, I can't accept a God that would make people to destroy them. Okay, if that's the choice you want to make, you sound like Pharaoh. You're barking against your creator. You're barking against your potter. And here is the proof that he does just that. And here is the proof that it is righteous. Because God said he was going to do it, and God did do it, and that makes it righteous. Scripture cannot literally speak. These words here in the beginning of verse 17, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't read these words. These words were not read to him. Scripture doesn't really speak. The, the quotation from Exodus 33, that is in verse 15, it says, he saith to Moses. So in one quotation, the Holy Spirit puts down, God, he, spake to Moses... And the other, Scripture, saith to Pharaoh. Now I want to comment just briefly on this little comparison because we compare spiritual things with spiritual to gather all that God might have for us in His Word. And it's this simple. When the Bible speaks, when the Bible has words and you read them, that is God speaking. It's that simple. And by this comparison, we have it reinforced to us. The Scripture saith... And then it goes into the first person. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. It's God speaking, but it's written down in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, recorded by Moses, and it's been read for almost 4,000 years. God spoke, and we believe that. Because Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is an accurate, perfect, historical account of what was said. And when God is in the first person, it may say, Scripture saith, but it's God speaking. I don't want to spend any longer on that. It's just precious to me to be reminded that the Bible is God speaking. And so it says, Scripture saith. But the Bible doesn't talk. Even if, even if you think that you are clairvoyant or something, you will not hear the Bible talking. God speaks, but it's recorded here. And so we understand that. We should value it as such. Pharaoh was the ruler of the greatest nation on earth. Or that part of the earth that God cared about. I'm sorry to say that to anyone who has relatives that were born and their family tree originated in another part of the earth. But the only part of the earth that God cared about was those nations that surrounded the nation of Israel which was his church that's where all the emphasis goes in the word of God and that's where all the emphasis goes in God's dealing with men is where his church is located so in that part of the earth Pharaoh was king the Egyptians ruled that part of the earth if not the whole earth they didn't meet anyone that they couldn't defeat and he was the ruler of that nation He is the third personal illustration of election after the sons of Abraham, the twins of Isaac and Rebekah, we have Pharaoh. He was humanly esteemed, prominent politically, successful, academically, militarily, and powerful as anyone else in the kingdom, but God rejected him. He was able in school. He was able in boot camp. He was able on the athletic fields of Egypt He was mighty in word and deed, and he exceeded all his siblings to the throne of Egypt. God raised him up in order to put him down, as this text teaches us. By nature, he was no different or worse than the Israelites living in his nation as servants. His nature was a child of wrath. His nature was a child of the devil. He followed the course of this world. And the things of Egypt were the only things that mattered to him. God, that is Jehovah, was not in all his thoughts. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. And here we have Exodus 9.16 recorded for us by the Apostle Paul through the Spirit, which we read earlier. Let me read it to you again. The The quotation part of verse 17. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Amen. A fundamental axiom of our faith is Proverbs 16.4, and it's a verse that ought to be taught to all children. Right. The Lord hath made all things for himself, Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. And the day of evil is primarily in that context, the day of judgment. When God comes in judgment upon the wicked and destroys them. And the word even there is a word of emphasis pointing out that the writer of Proverbs 16.4, our King Solomon was going to draw the extreme example of the axiom. The axiom is the Lord, that is Jehovah, hath made all things for himself. You exist for God. You do not exist for yourself. You exist for God. The things that God created, though you may wear them, though you may eat them, and though you may use them for transportation are also for the Lord, that you will thank Him for what you eat, what you wear, and what you ride. Everything is for the Lord's sake. Right. When He sends fruitful seasons because you are diligent in planting and harvesting, and puts food and gladness in your soul, it is a witness that He is good. It's not a witness that you are good, that you are diligent, and that farming is a great career. It is proof and witness and testimony that God is good. That's Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. I hope that some of you might have, just might have, gone and read the short commentary that we have on our website for Proverbs 16.4. The Lord was very merciful to us in helping explode that one sentence a little bit. Whoever wrote it I enjoyed it so much last evening myself and I mean that in full sincerity because it's all of God the lord hath made all things for himself the preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue and the fingers on the keyboard are of the lord amen and I hope you believe that this is this is a foundational fundamental fact of our faith "...the Lord hath made all things for Himself." And if you want to fulfill your destiny, you will make your life revolve around the glory of God who created you for Himself. That is your destiny. And He will get His destiny out of you one way or another, either actively or passively, in, in one respect either actively with you praising Him in heaven, or passively with you being pounded in the lake of fire, God will get Himself glory over all His creatures. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, in case you're wondering how far that statement should go, yea, even the extreme case that people love to throw up Well, I believe that God made all things for Himself, but not the wicked. The wicked make themselves wicked, and the wicked do wicked things. And that frustrates God. Oh, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. The second time I've quoted that today, and we've sung it once, so that's three times. I hope you remember Psalm 76 and verse 10. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Now, if we were to cheat, if you'll allow me that expression, and read ahead just five verses, and we would already know this without going to Proverbs chapter 16, but I'm not going there yet. The Lord is going to show that he, as a potter, is able to take from the same lump of humanity some clay and make a vessel of honor, one on which he will show his mercy and his grace, and he's able to take of that same lump some clay and make a vessel of dishonor, which he will destroy, because it was fitted to destruction. This is the gospel of God. This is the doctrine of God. There is a reason why the apostle had to answer the question, is there unrighteousness with God? Because that's what the natural man wants to say about such a creator. But Paul's answer is short. God forbid. Paul's answer is short. He quotes scripture to prove the positive side of election. Then he quotes another passage to prove the negative side of election. And then he goes on and illustrates it, which all men should be able to understand with a potter at a spinning wheel with a lump of clay. And then he summarizes it by declaring, that's how we're saved. And God has done that with some Jews and some Gentiles. In the 24th verse, it says that. He's not dealing with national privilege. He's dealing with spiritual privilege in the kingdom of God and eternal heaven as our destination. Back to Pharaoh. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. I hope you'll never forget Proverbs 16.4. We also want to remember Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created amen even the wicked for the day of evil were created for the pleasure of god his pleasure being the manifestation of his wrath and his power as romans 9:22 declares in the life of pharaoh and his earthly demise His purpose was, and his pleasure was, that he could get himself a great name throughout the earth by having destroyed the greatest man on the earth. Your ability, academically, athletically, or by any other effort, is only as good as those you have defeated. If all you ever did as an athlete were to pick second-rate competition, it would prove that you are only as good as second-rate. But the Lord raised up Pharaoh to be the greatest in the earth from conception to coronation so that he could destroy a king and overthrow a king and mock a king and provoke a king and trouble a king even for this same purpose if I raise thee up. And his purpose and his pleasure in the matter was that the name of Jehovah would be declared throughout all the earth. Because he is king of kings. And this is one of the kings that he is king of. And he proved it and showed it by the way he dealt with this king. He did the same with Nebuchadnezzar. Who was a greater king than Pharaoh. He was the head of gold. And yet God was king of kings. Where Nebuchadnezzar is one of the little kings with a small k. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. There is no mention of Pharaoh's pleasure. Did Pharaoh have pleasure in his life with God blessing him at every turn? Oh yes. Did God do him wrong by blessing him, by helping him get through the nine months of gestation? That he was a live birth and not another statistic of stillborns. Was God good to him? Did he do Pharaoh wrong? Did he do Pharaoh wrong by helping him get through kindergarten? Did he do him wrong by helping him through all of his academic training? His military training? And that the nation, by whatever means they used, chose him to be the next ruler of Egypt? Did God do him harm? No. Did God give him plain requests... At the mouth of Moses and Aaron. Did God give him gentle examples at first that the message should be heeded? Mm -hmm. Did his own magicians tell him, we cannot duplicate this plague. This is the finger of God. Did they recognize what he would not recognize? Did he do him wrong in giving him so many opportunities to repent? Did he make him rebellious? Oh no. He had in his heart exactly what you have in your heart and what I have in my heart, which is capable of all manner of rebellion and presumptuous sinning. If God withdraws his grace from us at all. All the blessing or favor in Pharaoh's life to make it to the throne of Egypt was for the end of finally being destroyed. God wanted to get this man up as high as he could. And how did he choose this man? Because this man in the womb was worse than his siblings? No. Because this man in grade school picked on girls and dipped their hair in the inkwell? Or put Elmer's glue on other children's desks? Was this man worse than the rest? No. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. It's all found in the will of God. God simply chose him who is the Lord that I should obey him. Famous last words out of this man's mouth when Moses first came to him. The world's most popular tract And you've heard me refer to this one before because it's the world's most popular tract. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, wrote that tract. He never had a clue about the Word of God or the God of the Word to write such a statement as the first spiritual law of the universe. It's a little tract, a rectangle, horizontal in layout, in which it tell, it's entitled The Four Spiritual Laws. And his first spiritual law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Our first spiritual law, if we were looking just at this sermon, is The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now that's a pretty big difference. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil, compared to, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I ask you, did Moses give this evangelistic piece of work to Pharaoh and his court before they left Egypt? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now Moses did tell Pharaoh that God had a wonderful plan for his life. But the wonder of the plan was the glory of God, not the pleasure of Pharaoh. There was some pleasure of Pharaoh getting toward the glory of God, but in the end it was all going to be the glory of God. And if you think I'm sarcastic and if you think I'm hard, wait until you meet the God of heaven for one second. I am merciful on Bill Bright. I handed that tract out as a teenager. It's been published all over the earth. You know, we often ask, was there a smiley face on the side of Noah's Ark in Genesis 6 through 9 that because of Bill Bright's deep work, it said, Smile, God loves you. As they drowned and suffocated in the waters that God sent from beneath and from above with gopher wood under their fingernails. As their babies bumped up against the ark, waterlogged in their diapers from the outside. Did Rebecca color a crib mobile with this sound bite to save Esau from an inferiority complex? Did little Esau lie there in his crib and have a mobile spinning above him? God loves you, Esau. And has a wonderful plan for your life. This is the word of God. This is where we stand right here. I will take an axiom that God gives me, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, and then he illustrates it, even the wicked for the day of evil, over what a man named Bill Bright gives me, that has had the effect, in Campus Crusade for Christ, of creating a bunch of watered down, doctrinally inept, effeminate, carnal, compromising, worldly Christians. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. We love it. Nebuchadnezzar, an even greater monarch than Pharaoh, learned the same lesson that God had raised him up to show his power in him. Read Daniel chapter 4 sometime as Nebuchadnezzar gives his personal testimony of God's dealings with him. The purpose of God in this text, as with all purposes, was certainly fulfilled. The Lord knows the end from the beginning and declares His purpose and His counsel, and it shall be fulfilled. And it was. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. And that purpose was for God's glory by showing His power and what He could do to the most powerful man on earth and that His name would be declared throughout all the earth. And it's being declared in the earth right now from my mouth to your ears. And it's been declared in such a way for nearly 4,000 years. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. And here is the purpose that God raised Pharaoh up from conception in his mother's womb to the throne of Egypt. That I might show my power in thee. I need to get you high so that I can knock you low and show how great I am. I need to put you on the throne where you in your proud arrogance would say to Moses, my shepherd preacher from the backside of the desert, who is the Lord that I should obey Him. So I raised you up to put you down, that I might show my power in you. He is King of kings for a reason. You know, verse 22 is going to tell us, as Paul builds his case toward the election of salvation, and where he puts Jews and Gentiles together into one body, he says in verse 22, What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known. It's the same purpose. God, in the in the reprobation of some, shows His wrath and His power. And in the election of others, shows His grace and His mercy. And that is why the distinction exists. He could have just damned the entire race and been perfectly just. He damned the entire race of fallen angels and saved none of them. The elect angels, as far as we understand from the revelation of Scripture, were preserved and kept in their holy state. So they are called holy angels and elect angels because God chose to keep them and not let them fall and follow their colleague into rebellion against Him. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, which I hope you've read in preparation, it says that God looked upon the host of the Egyptians from His cloud and He troubled them. He did not let them go down with simple drowning. Simple drowning only takes a couple minutes. He wasn't going to let Pharaoh go down quite so easily. He wanted Pharaoh to meet him before the suffocation had shut off his brain from working. His brain was still working when the wheels came off his chariot and he drove his chariot furiously because chariots don't roll very well without wheels. Simply an axle does not work very well in the muck or whatever Pharaoh was on in the midst of the Red Sea. And he got himself glory upon a man whom he had chosen who was no different than the rest of us. Right. We, are as wor- we are as worthy of that kind of judgment in our life as Pharaoh was. That's right. But God has made a difference out of sheer mercy and grace through Christ Jesus to save us. And we bless and praise His holy name for it. He looked upon them and took the wheels off their chariots so they had time to think about it before the water came in upon them. I'm going to overthrow you and destroy you, Moses told him. And he asked one final time there, As yet, you will not let my people go? Is that still your position that you won't let my people go? Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. And he did it by humbling him and crushing him and drowning his army in the midst of the Red Sea, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, back to Exodus chapter 10 about God's name being declared throughout all the earth. Exodus chapter 10. You know, these are the Bible stories that need to be told and told well to children. Most Bible story books have a picture of the ark. And the main picture of the ark is it's got a gang plant going down from its door and there's all the animals holding hands walking up into the ark. That's the main picture. There might be one with a storm and there might be one with a few people being tossed about, but you know, you really need to look at that in its graphic reality of what God did to the entire earth. Amen. Right. You know, that group of people outside these walls that talk about the human spirit. Well, what happened to the human spirit in the flood of Noah's day? What happened to American pride in the days of Noah's flood? But back to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 10. Look at what God told Moses. The Lord said unto Moses, verse 1 of Exodus 10, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that ye may know how that I am the Lord. God did these things to humble, humiliate, and destroy Pharaoh, but He also did them to give us a Bible storybook called the Bible so that we would have real, powerful, graphic lessons that the Lord, Jehovah, is God like no other. Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Look at 14. Exodus chapter 14. Verse 17, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. That is, the Egyptian army is going to follow them into the Red Sea. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, that's his army, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen, that's his cavalry. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. All those widows... And all those mothers at home would know that the God of the Hebrews, the Lord Jehovah, was a God unlike anything in Egypt. Because they were all at home fumbling the rosary beads of their Egyptian deities when their husbands and their sons and their brothers went out to battle. They'll know that I am the Lord. His name is going to be declared throughout all the earth. And that is what preaching is for, is to declare the glory of God. Ministers are ambassadors of a king. Ambassador is not a word describing a messenger of a martyr. Ambassador is a word describing a messenger of a king. Look at chapter 15. Moses and Miriam dance and sing a song and rejoice on the shores of the Red Sea as the bodies of the Egyptians wash up. And if you're wondering how a body in armor can wash up, remember, as they went through the water, they were ripping that armor off as fast as they could. But it wasn't fast enough. Exodus chapter 15. This is a song celebrating this terrible event. And if you think that this is just terrible and crass and wrong... To stand on the shore and rejoice over waterlogged, suffocated, drowned, bloated bodies? This is what God's people do when He destroys the wicked. Because remember, for a hundred to a hundred and fifty years, they had persecuted those Israelites. And this is God's vengeance in one respect. Verse 14 of chapter 15. The people shall hear and be afraid. Exodus fifteen fourteen. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Look at chapter 18. When Jethro came all the way from Midian to see his son-in-law Moses. Exodus chapter 18, verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Now notice the perspective of godly people, Moses and Miriam dancing and singing and playing with a tambourine on the shores of the Red Sea. Notice Jethro, the godly father-in-law of Moses and his declaration of the great glory of God. What happened when the two spies snuck into the house of Rahab the harlot in the city of Jericho. Do you remember? I'm not turning you to the passage to save time. But she recounted to them that when they heard the exploits of God delivering His people of the land of Egypt, their hearts melted. Their hearts melted. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken out several hundred years later into the battle, and Israel shouted and the earth echoed because of the shout, because they had the Ark of the Covenant out on a battlefield. The Philistines gathered themselves together and said, We have never heard of the Ark of Jehovah coming onto the battlefield before. Do you all remember what this God did to the Egyptians? That's right. That my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That was several hundred years later after the event. And here we are, several thousand years later after the event, glorying in the event at the greatness of our God. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and that 18th verse. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. This is wrapping up the proof that there is no unrighteousness with God and that there is definitely an elective purpose in God's dealing with men and that election has two sides. The positive side and the negative side. Therefore is a word drawing a conclusion. Therefore, based on what I have given you in verses 15 through 17, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have mercy on Isaac and not the other seven sons of Abraham. He will have mercy on Jacob and not Esau. He will have mercy on Moses and the Israelites, but not Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, because that's what the Bible says in verse 15 here, quoted from Exodus 33, 19 there. Right. And then the second half, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Whom he will, he hardeneth. This is the negative side of election, or reprobation, or rejection. Where he passes over someone and does not show them the mercy and compassion, he wills to show others. He is no respecter of persons, because his choice is not based on anything in them. As the 11th verse tells us in this chapter, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. The purpose is according to... The good pleasure of his own will. And whom he will, he hardeneth. And Pharaoh was one of those that he hardened. Esau was one of those that he hardened. The other sons of Abraham were others that God rejected and never showed the favor and kindness that he showed to Isaac, the chosen seed. These are the children of God. The issue under consideration here is not national privilege. The issue under consideration is, according to the 8th verse, who are the children of God? And as we come to verses 22 through 24, the issue is going to be who are the vessels of mercy that were afore prepared into glory, that God is going to show the glory of heaven to forever. This is Romans chapter 9. This used to be taught much more commonly than it is now. It used to be believed much wider than it is now. But let us never forsake it. And the power and glory of these verses about the sovereignty of our God. Because of therefore opening this verse, we know Pharaoh is an example of God hardening men. Therefore, there hasn't been much of an illustration of God's rejection, except Esau where it says he hated him. But here with the case of Pharaoh, there's more said. Your life and your existence and your successes and your prosperity were for me to get glory in destroying you. Therefore, on that basis, and that final illustration of God's use of the life of Pharaoh, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Pharaoh is a perfect case study of God hardening men as a result of his elective choice in their lives. God told Moses he would harden Pharaoh's heart before he ever sent Moses to Pharaoh. It's found in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. You know, God gives men up to their own minds. When they show rebellion and rejection of offers of truth and wisdom, he turns them over to a reprobate mind. You're most familiar with Romans chapter 1 where God gives men over to the reprobate mind of sodomy for rejecting the revelation of His existence in the creation of the world and for not being thankful for all His merciful kindnesses toward them and His providence toward the earth. You're familiar with that one. But there are dozens and dozens and dozens more like that throughout the scriptures of God hardening and blinding men and just giving them over to their mind. God does not have to infuse evil into a man's heart in order to harden him. All he had to do was restrain his grace and mercy and kindness and benevolence in opening Pharaoh's eyes to the miraculous power of Moses, and he was going to rebel because he had never met anyone in his life that he couldn't defeat before. So when you read the account of Pharaoh in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, you read where it says God hardened his heart a number of times and about three times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, the two work together. All it is is God withdrawing himself. When the sun leaves, darkness occurs. Is God the cause of, uh, is the sun the cause of darkness? When the sun goes down, darkness occurs. Is the sun the cause of darkness? When God leaves a man, and that man defaults to his own depraved nature, is God the cause of that man's depraved nature? No. Is God the cause of that man's depraved nature being let loose? Yes. But who is responsible for that depraved nature exercising itself that way? The man. The Bible tells us that with wicked hands, you have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter taught this in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Wicked hands, the guilt was applied to them. And yet it was that they did that which had been determined beforehand to be done. Sennacherib came against Israel. And he thought very highly of himself that he was going to whip that nation in Isaiah chapter 10 like he had whipped all the nations before them. God used him for a while against his own people to chasten them into humbling themselves and praying. And then as soon as he was done using him as a chastening rod on the backs of his people Israel, he destroyed him for his arrogance in the matter. This is Isaiah 10. We've learned these things. We need to remember these things. And when someone barks against the doctrine of election, you should be able to defend it. God does not, nor does He need to, infuse evil into men. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. James 1, 13-16. He doesn't have to do that. All He has to do is withdraw His merciful grace that restrains... And you, or they, or I, or anyone, would rush into any sin. Any sin. If you don't think God can make you a sodomite, He can make you a sodomite before this service ends. Right. Simply by withdrawing His restraining of your base, wicked, rebellious lust. You say, I don't have any lust like that in me. You do not know yourself well enough, and you stand in danger. Therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You be thankful for God's mercy and grace that you are not one, and that God has saved you and given you a spouse. Thank you, Lord. Man is fully responsible for what he does even when God uses his sins. God gets the glory for wisdom on the part of any man or woman. If a man or woman does anything good, anything righteous, anything holy, it's because God worked that in them and then helped them work it out of them. And so Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I was more diligent than the others before me, yet by the grace of God. He would, oh, he would bring it all back to the grace of God, though he did apply himself so well. If men reject God, he will withhold understanding from them. If men reject God, God may provoke a man to irritate him further. Like First Kings 22, when God irritated Ahab in the presence of Jehoshaphat with Micaiah's prophecy about him and Micaiah's lie about him. But remember, God is always fair and righteous. Ahab wanted a lie. Because what was his first statement about the prophet? He never says anything good about me. So God sent him in to say something good about him. God is righteous. Our God is righteous. Please turn quickly with me so that I can close with you. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Three points and we close. And they're going to be quick, so turn quickly with me. Deuteronomy 2.30. God hardens reprobates in general. God hardens men in general. This one about Pharaoh being hardened is only one of many examples in the Bible. Here's another one. Sihon King of Heshbon. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 30. This is Israel making their way toward Canaan. But Sihon king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. What makes the difference between this Sihon king of Heshbon and Pharaoh of Egypt and Abimelech of Philistia in the days of Abraham. God's choice. See, God restrained Pharaoh, and God restrained Abimelech, king of Philistia, from touching Sarah or Abraham. But here he just withdrew his restraint, and when he withdraws his restraint, his heart gets obstinate, and he's hardened, and he came against Israel in battle, though he already knew what happened to the Egyptian army. Right. Because God wanted to eliminate him, and get him out of the way. Look at Joshua chapter 11, which is after the nation of Israel got in to the land of Canaan. Joshua 11:20. I just want to give you a couple examples of dozens and dozens of God hardening men. Joshua 11 and verse 20. For it verse let's get verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel. What would you have done if you'd have been the king of a city state? Would you have sued for peace? Would you have offered anything for peace? There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. And I've taught on this before. He made those nations come in battle against Israel so that he could kill every single one of them because if they had all stayed at home sitting in their lazy boys watching TV, it would have been hard to kill them all. They would have showed them favor. Now, Three times a year, the Israelites could go up to Jerusalem right. for the three great feast days on the Jewish calendar, and God would restrain the hearts of all nations around them so that they would not desire the land of the Israelites. Yeah. So he's able to do that. But when he lifts that off, see, when the, this is the fourth time, saying it once, I said it twice, this is the fourth time. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. When man does not explode with the hellish fury of the devil in rebellion against God and his people, it's because God is restraining him. All God has to do to harden is just lift that restraint off and let them go. If he puts... A skateboard in the man's way as he comes out the door of his house and he steps on the skateboard, falls down, knocks out two teeth and breaks his nose. That's a little circumstantial help to bring the hellish fury out of a wicked man. But notice that God can restrain them from desiring the property of the Israelites or by lifting that restraint, it is the wrath of man that praised God by wanting to come against Israel in battle, though Egypt And Sihon and others had been destroyed before. God hardens men in general. God hardens Jews that he has rejected as well. The two sons of Eli would not listen to Eli for what reason? Because God had purposed he was going to destroy them because of their wickedness in his public worship. This is 1 Samuel 2.25. They would not heed Eli's rebuke of their conduct because God would destroy them. Why didn't Rehoboam listen to the advice of the older counselors? Because God would destroy him. Why did Ahab go to battle? Because God had rejected him. And through Micaiah's lie and through Micaiah's prophecy, Ahab went to battle to prove Micaiah wrong. That is how wicked man's heart can be when God lifts the restraint. Throughout the New Testament, the most Commonly quoted quotation from the Old Testament is from Isaiah chapter 6, which I read to you a few weeks ago, where God told Isaiah, go and preach to this people, make fat their ears and close their eyes, and stop up their hearts, lest they hear with their ears and see with their eyes and understand and be converted. The Gospel accounts record that. Paul records that statement. Jesus quotes that statement. That is the most common quotation from the Old Testament. And it's God hardening Jews. We're going to see more of that. It's God blinding Jews. More of that is yet to come. Okay, here's what we close with. That was God hardens men in general and God hardened the Jews that he had rejected. God may harden his disobedient children. And we should all tremble in our rejoicing about the sovereign God that we worship. But God will not let you He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That sounds like Pharaoh. But if God continues to bring His message to bear in your life by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of this pulpit, by the singing of our songs, by your reading of the Bible, and you do not heed it, but continue to do your thing, God can blind and harden you. He sent Israel quail, but He sent Leanness into their soul. That's, that's a blinding. That's thinking I'm fat and happy because my freezer and pantry are full while your heart is empty and your mind is empty of the joy and satisfaction and peace of walking with God. Horrible, horrible judgment. God had a case against Israel and he turned David over to Satan. Second Samuel 24, 1 says God hardened David's heart. First Chronicles 21, 1 said that Satan stood up and took David. Put the two of them together, God turned David over to Satan so that David would number Israel against the advice of his own nephew Joab and sin against God and cost the lives of 70,000 because God would punish Israel. The man after God's own heart? God turned him over to Satan? Yes. One more. Peter said, Lord, you're not going to be crucified tonight. I'll die for you. Jesus said, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The Lord can let Satan have us for a while. Yet he prays for Peter. I have prayed for thee, singular. Satan hath desired to have you, plural. It is very personal. It is very precious. But I want you to understand that Peter, because he opened his big mouth, God let Satan have him for a short while that the flesh might be destroyed and the spirit saved. And the spirit was saved because when Jesus turned and looked at him, He went out and wept bitterly. And you can see by the rest of his life that he served the Lord Jesus Christ. In the day of Pentecost, he wasn't afraid of little maids around the fire of the chief priest's home. He blasted those Jews and told them that that Jesus whom they had crucified was Lord. What does that mean to us? Give God the glory from this message. Humble yourself. Confess your sins and agree with joy and zeal to keep all of His commandments, lest He turn you over in the slightest degree to a lean heart or any other form of judgment that I've just referred to. May God bless the preaching of His Word.